0: Okay, well, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 3 tonight. 1 Kings chapter 3. And we've been looking at King Solomon. We've been studying through uh, the kings of Israel and uh, trying to learn from their successes and their failures. And we saw that uh, King Saul was the king that all the people demanded to be like all the other nations around them. And he was uh, the carnal Christian uh, from beginning to end, although it, it seems like he was kind of okay at the beginning. Uh, from beginning to end, he just kind of did his own thing, lived for himself, uh, allowed his flesh to be in charge. He didn't serve the Lord, didn't follow the Lord, didn't lead the people in a godly manner. And we saw after that King David was uh, the normal Christian or what should be the normal Christian life. Uh, it had its ups and downs. It had uh, times where he was getting victory, times where he was failing. But through both both of those, he was learning, he was growing. And at the end, he was still faithful. And I think that's one of the things that we need to strive for. We know that we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to master this. None of us have arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we want to continue walking with the Lord, continue keeping our eyes on him, and we want to finish well. Uh, whenever we get to the end of this life, we want to be like Paul and say, I have uh, fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And uh, David was able to say that. He got to the end, and he was passing the baton on to, to Solomon, and he was still serving God. Mm-hmm. And then when we come to Solomon, Solomon is more along the lines of a backslidden Christian. He starts off very well, uh, but then he goes astray. And toward the end of his life, it seems like, Uh, He gets tired of uh, following his heart, tired of going the world's way. He writes the Song of Solomon where, or not the Song of Solomon, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes and talks about all his vanity. He says, I've tried it all, all that left me empty, and I've come back to God. And uh, so he returned after all of that. Uh, But most of Solomon's life wasn't necessarily a success story. We think of him usually of being uh, successful, but even with what we talked about on Sunday, that whenever we're serving the Lord, it gives us a different idea of what success is. Okay. And Solomon had a, uh, a great kingdom. He had a wealthy kingdom. It, it was prosperous. It was a time of peace. Uh, but though he had all of these good things to his, to his credit, uh, whenever you look a little bit closer and look at his walk with God, and look what his leadership was really like, and look what he actually accomplished beyond just the surface level things in the nation of Israel, Uh, it wasn't such a gleaming success. And we're going to see that as we continue. But last week what we saw is that uh, Solomon became king, and we talked about how David had fought the battles. Uh, David had went through all of these hardships and all these difficulties. He had ran from uh, King Saul. He had uh, united the kingdom between uh, the ones that had followed after Ishbosheth and the ones that had followed after him. He had brought about a revival in the land and led the people to follow after God. He's the one that had the vision to build the temple and desired to build a temple. He is the one that brought the Ark of the Covenant into to uh, the city there in Jerusalem, and he is the one that was uh, organizing the worship and everything within uh, the temple and the singers and all are all not the temple, but uh, they didn't have it built yet. But he was organizing the worship amongst the people and everything, and so he was showing the people how to serve the Lord. Yes, he made mistakes and everything, but whenever he was passing off the scene, what he was handing off to Solomon was something great. He was handing over a kingdom that was wealthy, he was handing over a kingdom that was uh, respected. It was one that had defeated all of the enemies around them and they had peace. And so basically, he had gotten it to a, a high place uh, morally, spiritually, politically, all of these things. And he hands it over to Solomon. And the thing that I've uh, kind of tried to hammer home the past two weeks is that David gave him this great opportunity. And now it was in Solomon's hands. What is he going to do with it? Mm -hmm. And so we started exploring that last week, what he's doing with it. And we saw uh, David's last words, and we saw how Solomon was to tie up some loose ends. Uh, His last words to Solomon uh, found there in chapter number two. He tells him that he is to uh, continue serving the Lord faithfully. Uh, He says, keep the charge of the Lord God, walk in his ways, keep his statutes, and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. And so that was David's last uh, piece of advice, his last uh, words there to Solomon. He says, "Make sure you continue to follow God faithfully all the way through your life. If you keep His words, you keep His precepts. Live according to the principles of the Bible, basically. Then you are going to be successful." Okay, And then whenever we got into the idea of tying up loose ends, he said there's some, there's some uh, dangers that you're going to face as you become king. There's different men who have lay in wait for me. There's different ones that have caused troubles and trials for me. And if you don't watch them, if you don't pay attention to them, if you don't deal with them, they're going to cause you trouble. And so they were loose ends that Solomon was inheriting. Yeah. And so we looked at Solomon dealing with those loose ends last week, and he took care of Abiathar, the priest that had betrayed David. He took care of Joab, the one that had uh, slew innocent men and uh, shed innocent blood. And so he cleaned out or he he brought judgment and justice mm-hmm. against Joab. Uh, he took care of Shimei, the Benjamite that cursed David as Absalom was running him out of town. And so these were all three men that would pose a threat to Solomon's kingdom. And so for us, just a practical application from what we looked at is in our lives, we need to follow David's advice as well to live by the precepts of God's word, Mm -hmm. to live by the principles of God's word. If we want to have success, we follow the owner's manual, (laughs) the instruction book, whichever you want to call it. And then the other thing is, is that we've got to watch out because there are enemies in our way. There are different things that we need to be aware of, and it may not be people. Mm-hmm. It may be things. It may be weaknesses. It may be blind spots that we have that we need to be aware of to deal with, to guard against in our lives so that they don't come in and bring problems in our lives. Yeah. And so we saw those those things happen there, and we came to the end of chapter number 2, and it says in verse 46, so the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, which went out and fell upon him that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So Solomon had received David's last words. He's tied up the loose ends. The kingdom is made safe, made secure in Solomon's hands. And then we come to chapter number three. Chapter number three starts with the word and. So we're continuing the thought. And so in chapter three, verse one, it says, and Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And so as we look at this passage of scripture, we are kind of in the middle of Solomon's success story. Solomon had a strong beginning. Uh, He came in, he was following David's advice. David had uh, basically set him up for success. He had given him a huge advantage at the very beginning and Solomon took that, was running with it. He got rid of these guys that were a threat to him. And then what we're going to find after the passage I just read, uh, he is he goes and leads the people, the leaders of the nation of Israel, to go out to Gibeon, which is where the, the tabernacle was pitched at, where the altar and different things was at. And he leads them out there. He offers up a thousand sacrifices. He dreams a dream at night. The Lord offers him up. The opportunity. What would you have me to do for you? Basically, it's like the the old fairy tale of the genie and the lamp. Okay, mm-hmm. he stumbles upon this. You know, the Lord comes to him and he says, "Ask whatever you want; I'll give it to you." And he asks for wisdom. He says, "I'm I'm but a child. I'm uh, incapable of doing this task that's before me. I feel overwhelmed with this job. I'm following after King David, the king that all of the kings of Israel are going to be measured against." From there through the rest of the kingdom, up until Jesus. And if you look throughout all the rest of the kings, they are all measured against David. Mm -hmm. And so Solomon says, I have huge footsteps to follow. I have huge shoes to fill. And so he asks for wisdom. And God grants him wisdom and says, I'm going to give you uh, victory over your enemies and wealth and long life, all these different things. And so we find that Solomon is in the middle of really a success story here, it seems like. Solomon's doing the right things, he's uh, going the right direction, or it seems like from a surface level. But in the passage that we read there, the first three verses of chapter number three, we get a preview into Solomon about what he's going to be like and what his kingdom is going to be like. Okay, The very first verse that we find there in chapter three, it says that Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And we talked about this just very briefly at the end of last week's kind of as a preview. And so Solomon, as he's still very early on in his career as king over Israel, he goes to Egypt and he makes a league with them. He makes signs a treaty with them, whatever you want to call it, and he enters into an agreement with Egypt. Now, of all the people, I think the only ones that would probably be worse for him to enter into an agreement with than... Egypt would be maybe the Philistines because it's a little bit closer there, right? And so David has given victory from all of the enemy surrounding. He has went and fought battles and put them down, put them away, trusting in the Lord to win those battles and those victories. And now Solomon is following behind him. Rather than fighting the battles, he is seeking to lead through diplomacy. David was a shepherd. Solomon is a statesman. Yes. Okay, I think I remember that. Okay. And so Solomon is going by, basically as a politician, as a statesman, and he goes to Egypt, which in the Bible is always a type of sin, a picture of sin. He goes to Egypt and he makes a deal, he makes an agreement, and says we are going to join together, we're going to be allies, and we're going to fight for one another, we're going to have peace with one another, we're going to trade and have deals with one another. And not only does he go to Egypt for an ally, to seal the deal, he ends up marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Okay? And one of the reasons why this seems strange to me is that the people of Israel had spent 400 years as slaves to Egypt. For 400 years while they were in Egypt, they remained separate from the people of Egypt. Okay? But now Solomon is making an alliance, and he is intermarrying with the people of Egypt. Okay, The nation of Israel were commanded by God in the law that they were not to be unequally yoked, that they were not to go out and take for themselves wives of the people of the land. And now Solomon being the king, Solomon being the leader of the nation, he's held to a higher standard, but what's he doing? He is going out and he is marrying a pagan princess. And so David has led the people of Israel in a revival, if you will. He's led them back to a love of God, to serve God, to godly principles and precepts. And Solomon is already going a different direction. Okay? Mm -hmm. For one thing, they weren't supposed to be making agreements with the surrounding nations for peace or for trade or anything else. How were they supposed to have safety, victory, and prosperity? How is the people of Israel supposed to have safety, peace, and prosperity? By following following God, by trusting God, right? He is their shield and their exceeding great reward, right? And so rather than him trusting in God, rather than him following God and saying, God, how would you have me to go? What would you have me to do? He is playing the political game and doing what every other leader in the the region does— and intermarrying with the other tribes and nations to broker deals and make peace. And so he's playing the game. Mm -hmm. And this begins his uh, lifelong thing of accumulating wives to himself. Mm -hmm. Okay, And whenever you continue reading through this, I think it's in uh, chapter 11, uh, whenever he has 700 wives, it says he has 700 wives that are princesses. And I don't believe by reading that, I don't believe they're princesses because they're married to Solomon. They are princesses because Solomon married princesses. And so every minor tribe or people group, nation, whatever groups was around, if there was a chief or a king that had a marriable daughter, Solomon married her to make a connection, a bond between him and these fellow tribes and kingdoms that was around him. And that's how he amassed 700 wives. And that was to broker peace deals. That was to have these connections to give him a political advantage in the region. But God had promised David, and he had promised the nation of Israel through the law, that if they would follow after him, if they would seek him, if they would allow God to be the leader of the nation, if they would trust in him, rather than all the nations around him, then he would protect them. He would prosper them. He would give them everything that they needed. Mm -hmm. And so we see how Solomon is going in that errant direction. So anyway, uh, the reason this is so important is that the nation of Israel was meant to be a witness and example to all of those nations around. Mm -hmm. And the way that they were to be a witness and example is they were to follow God's word, they were to follow his precept, they were were to allow God to lead and to protect and to provide for them. And if they would do that, then all the nations around them would see them prospering, they would see them uh, as God was working in their midst, as he was doing great things in them and through them, and as a result, the people around them would get to know the God of Israel. But the nation of Israel doesn't do that. Now we're going to find that with Solomon, all the nations around are coming to Solomon, that his wisdom is known to everyone far and near, basically the world over, or their concept of the world at that time. Mm -hmm. And they're coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but they're not so much interested in the God of Solomon, Mm -hmm. which is a sad thing. And so God wanted them to trust him, to follow him, and let him take care of the nation of Israel like a hen taking care of her chickens so that all of the rest of the nations around would say, we want to know the God that they're serving. Mm-hmm. But Solomon sells it out, sells it short, goes away from that. And that's a lesson to us as Christians today because we were called to be witnesses into all the world. And how are we to be witnesses? By serving a true and living God, by having something that they don't have. And so by trusting in him, by loving him, by living by his precepts, by allowing him to take care of us and take us through the things that are difficult, uh, bring us into the victories that he provides, all of these things, if we are living for God, following God, we are going to be distinct, we're going to be separate, we're going to be different, and we are going to have an impact, okay? But if we do things just like all the rest of the world around us, then there is no distinction, there is no difference And there is no reason for them to even consider the God that we serve because the God that we are serving, in their eyes, isn't doing anything than the gods that they're serving. Mm -hmm. Okay? If we look at the nation of Israel and what the Bible says about it, over in Numbers chapter number 23, this was interesting to me. Hopefully it is to you. Numbers 23, it's whenever... Uh, Balak is trying to get Balaam to curse the nation of Israel, and in chapter twenty-three and verse number nine, this is Balaam talking. I'll go ahead and read verse eight. It says, "How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed, or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? Uh, for from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone." and shall not be reckoned among the nations. And so this is Balaam prophesying. God is using an apostate. Well, I don't know if he's even an apostate. He was a pagan. God is using a pagan to prophesy to another pagan about God's people. And he says, this is a people who dwells alone and is not numbered with the nations around them. Okay. And Solomon is reversing that. Mm -hmm. And he is leading the nation of Israel to be numbered with all the nations around. So he is compromising. He is uh, basically ecumenical in his way of looking at things if we compare it to things today. In Deuteronomy chapter number 33, we have a similar idea. That's one of the things I was thinking when you were saying that they were marrying is that they were supposed to be separate. Mm-hmm. And how that was joining them all in. Right. And so Deuteronomy 33, down at verse number 27, it says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon the land of corn and of wine. Also his heavens shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, Israel." who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. And so those are two different places where it specifically says the nation of Israel is to be alone, to dwell in safety alone, under the protection of God's hand, Mm -hmm. under his leadership, trusting in him to protect and to provide for them. And so, what Solomon is doing as he starts making affinity, as he makes allegiances with Pharaoh, and later on with all these other nations, seven hundred princesses, right? And so, all of these chieftains, all of these kings, all whatever it is, he is making an affinity and allegiance with them for political advantage. And for prosperity's sake, he's doing this to work out trade deals. He's doing this to bring in wealth into his coffers. All of these things he's doing, and he's doing it through uh, this uh, building up alliances with these other nations. Uh, something that Les was talking about there a second ago in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here, I don't have it written down there exactly. Let me look. Okay, down to verse number 14. It says, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, thou shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him over thee, whom the Lord shall choose, one from among the brethren that shalt, shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. Forasmuch as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. So he says, have no dealings with Egypt whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, That his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold, and he shall and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of the law in a book out of that which is before the priest uh, the priest the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of the law and these statutes and to do them that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and the, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So all the way back in Deuteronomy in the law, uh, this was before there was ever a king. God put in there a provision. He says, when you are entered into the land, you are going to desire a king. You're going to want to be like the lands around you. So whenever you do pick a king, You're to pick the one who God chooses for you. You are to appoint the one that God has chosen for you. He must be a Jew, uh, and he needs to make sure that whenever he becomes a king, that he doesn't multiply horses to himself, he doesn't multiply wives to himself, that he doesn't return down to Egypt and broker deals with Egypt and have connections with that land that I've separated you from. He is not to multiply silver and gold to himself. And he is to be a man of my word, making his own copy of my law, reading it daily and following its statutes all of his life. And just from that part that we read in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon broke almost every single thing that mm-hmm. that said. Yeah. Okay? If we turn over to um, Second Chronicles, making you use your Bibles a little bit tonight. Okay, over in Second Chronicles, um, just for reference here, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, or not Kings, First and Second, yeah, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings was written before the captivity. Okay, and First uh, and Second Kings was written by the prophet Jeremiah before they went into captivity, recounting basically the reason why God was judging them sending them into captivity. Uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles uh, covers the same subject matter, really, of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Okay? And it, ha- it is written after they return from captivity, written by Ezra the scribe. Remember him? Yeah. Okay. And so it is written by him and recounting their history to a new generation that is returning to the promised land that has been away in Babylon, okay? So basically, you're going to find a repeat of most of the things uh, from First and Second Kings into 2 Chronicles, okay? It's just going to be a repeat of it. It's going to be more of a focus on um, the line of Judah rather than on Israel, and it's going to have a little bit of a different emphasis as you go through it but it repeats the same things. And so whenever we come to 2 Chronicles chapter number one, we are looking at some of the very same things as we're talking about here in 1 Kings chapter number three. And it goes through in the first half of the chapter and it talks about uh, Solomon's sacrifices there in Gibeon where he sacrifices a thousand burnt offerings upon the altar in Gibeon, which we're going to get to here in just a minute. But after that, in the second half of the chapter, Um let's see Verse number fourteen of Second Chronicles chapter one and Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four or wait a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen, which he placed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. Now, by the way, Solomon was a king of peace. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do not really have any real battles, any fights and things that's going on. However, he has a larger standing army than David did whenever David fought all the battles. So he's got 12,000 chariot men. This isn't foot soldiers. This is chariot men. Okay. Uh, Placed all throughout Israel. Uh, Verse 15. And the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones okay, multiplying silver and gold, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore te- trees that are in the veil for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt, which is a direct mm-hmm. uh, offense to what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price and they fetched up and brought forth out of Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, and so brought they out horses for all the kings of the Hittites, and for the kings of Syria by their means. And so Solomon actually went to the place where he was a horse trader. He went to the place where he was brokering these deals with all of the nations around him, specifically at least the Hittites, and so Solomon is buying horses out of Egypt And then he is selling them to all the nations around. He's got a horse-selling business, further enriching himself, doing the exact same thing that God told him not to do. Okay? And so as we're looking here in chapter number three, in the very first verse, it is a preview of the direction that Solomon is going to go with his life. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this verse is that it gives us a good idea of how to look at, how to interpret the rest of this, because sometimes whenever we ignore something as simple as this one verse, we look at the rest of the chapter with kind of rose-colored glasses. We're thinking, oh boy, Solomon is doing good. When in reality, and I hate to be so negative on him, in reality what Solomon is doing is he is living and doing uh, what he wants to do, following after his heart, multiplying his wives, multiplying his wealth and his riches, building up a name for himself rather than building up a people for God and rather than serving God, okay? You whenever? I mean, just in that one verse and looking around in other scripture, seeing how he then been completely opposite of what his duties were already, how even after that, even after that was started, how the Lord came to him and gave him wisdom after that. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into that in that just a minute, Okay. And so he begins this intermarrying. He has his first wife. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons the prohibition for him marrying these wives was that they would cause his heart to stray away from God. If we skip forward and turn to First Kings chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, But, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clav- clave to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And so God had a reason for those prohibitions. He had a reason to say, don't do these things. And on top of that, Solomon was the leader of the nation. He was an example to the people. Everyone was looking to him, and all the nations surrounding was judging the nation based on Solomon's actions and what he was doing not only judging the people, but judging their God based on Solomon's actions and his doings, right? He was a representative. And so as God said, don't do these things. I wonder if he actually went through, copied out his version of the scriptures like he was supposed to, and if he paid any attention to it, if he read it, and if he did, what did he do whenever he came to passages like Deuteronomy 17 that specifically dealt with him? Whenever it said, don't do these things, and is he just reading down through it? He's like, yeah, guilty, yeah, guilty. Oh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he's done here. He is going against what God has told him to do. And I can't read these things without making application because this isn't just a history lesson. Right. But we have God's precepts. We have his word, and it gives instruction for us how to be successful in this life, how to have God's blessings on us in this life, how to lay up for ourselves treasures and glory, He has for us a ways to miss pain and heartache that has to do with sin. Mm -hmm. And we have the choice whether we observe what God's word says and says, I want to follow his word because I believe God and I trust God's word and I trust what it says. Or whether we follow our own heart, our own desire and says, yeah, I know it says that, but I mean, Solomon could use the, the excuse and say, but I'm the king, this doesn't apply to me. But I'm a pretty good guy, but I'm smart, I'm wise, I'm a good leader. He could look at all the things that he accomplished and say, surely God's happy with my life, look at how he's blessed. Mm-hmm. And we've seen plenty of times that that is not the measure of success. Right. And we'll see that even further as we go on. So not only there, but we look at verse 2 and 3, and they seem a little bit disjointed. you ever read through the Bible and there's verses that are against each other that seem disconnected? And so it says that uh, he married this daughter. He didn't uh, let her live in the palace because it was over against where the the Ark of the Covenant was located at. So he put her at a distance because she was a Gentile. She was a pagan. And so he he separated her. He's like, okay, uh, she's not a Christian, so I'm going to make her live over here kind of deal. And then verse number two, it says only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And so this is another place where Solomon is compromising. Mm -hmm. There is a comparison in verse number three that he loved the Lord, walking after the statutes like David did, Except mm-hmm. And so David was following and serving God at this level, and Solomon backed up just a little. Yeah. He didn't attain to the level. He decided to let a few things slide. He decided to compromise a bit. And so David wasn't sacrificing in the high places. What he was doing, he was leading the people of Israel to abandon the high places. He wanted to make a... Uh, a temple for them to unify and serve God at, and he had the, the altar and the tabernacle erected there in Gibeon, mm-hmm. which would have been somewhere around eight kilometers outside of Jerusalem. Then he had the um, Ark of the Covenant located there in Jerusalem, but he had one place for the people to worship at. But whenever it starts talking about them worshiping on all of the high places, that was a pagan practice. That, they, that the pagans, what they would do is they would worship all the host of heavens and all their plethora of gods upon every elevated area. They would build, if there was a raised place, they would build their tabernacle, their altar, whatever on top of that to sacrifice unto false gods. Mm-hmm. So basically all these high places were altars that were dedicated to false gods, and the people of Israel were taking pagan altars and sacrificing, be it to the false gods or be the real God, but they were using pagan altars to worship the God of heaven. And so we could compare that today to so many people are trying to worship and serve the God of heaven through worldly means. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to, uh, rather than worshiping a Holy God, by the means that he has put out in scripture, we are saying we are going to serve God the way that everyone serves their false gods, the way that the world does things. God's going to have to settle for that. You see things today such as uh, church services that look more like nightclubs. Yeah. And you can't tell any difference between the atmosphere, the music, the, the different things that's going on. And it's more or less that they are doing the things that are pleasing to the flesh And saying, God, this is the worship you have to accept. And so this is kind of what was going on there. And it tells us in in verse number three that Solomon was participating in this. It says that he loved the Lord. He was walking in the statutes like David, his father. Only there was this bit of compromise. He was sacrificing in the high places. Mm -hmm. So we come down to verse number four. We'll go ahead and continue reading here. It says, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer on that altar. And so this was where the tabernacle was pitched at. It's where the brazen labor, where the, the uh, altar, where all the things that Moses had constructed out in the wilderness, that's where that was set up at. Mm-hmm. Everything was there except for the Ark of the Covenant it was in a tent in Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay. And so Solomon went out there, and um, we didn't read it in Second Chronicles, but it gives it a little bit more detail about what's going on. But he leads the the leaders of the nations, the tribal leaders, out there, and it's kind of a way of unifying the nation, kind of leading them, and having this common uh, ceremony at the beginning of his reign, uh, as he's going and offering up all of these sacrifices. All these burnt offerings and appealing to God. This is kind of a spiritual beginning, if you will, of his reign. And so it says the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in the uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, and thou hast given him a son to set on his throne as it is this day. So if we were to skip over those first three verses that I read and just jump into this, this is a phenomenal passage, and it paints Solomon in such a great light as if he is so much of a spiritual giant, right? And remember, I said Solomon started off well. And so in the verses that I read there, God says, ask me what I I shall give thee, and Solomon's response was he was giving God the glory here. He was giving God the credit, and he's saying, God, you have rewarded my father David greatly because my father served you. He walked in your statutes. He walked in righteousness and truth and uprightness of heart. So he is understanding of the fact That God's blessing and the continuing of the kingdom and David's success is completely and wholly due to his walk with God. Right? Mm -hmm. So Solomon is fully aware. He can't plead ignorance. Solomon is fully aware of how to be a successful king. He says, David has shown me that he walked in righteousness. He kept your precepts. He followed after you. You have blessed him. You have uh, given him a successor. Now look at this in the light of what Solomon would be. Saul refused to follow God. He didn't live righteously, and his lineage ended with him. David lived righteously, served God, trusted God, and God continued his lineage, right? And so Solomon sees this. He acknowledges this. He knows this. And he says in verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, Thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in. Solomon would have been probably in his early 20s here. So he says, I am inexperienced. I am green. We talked about last week how Solomon didn't have to go and fight battles. Solomon was raised in the palace. He was raised in a time of relative peace. He was raised at the end of David's life, whenever the battles were over, the successes were won, and he reaped the benefits and the rewards of David's kingdom. And so he didn't get to see what it took to make the kingdom to what it was. He did see that David was walking with God and God rewarded him. But he says, I don't know how to lead such a great people. Verse 8 says, And thy servant is in the midst of this people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy, great, thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing and hast not asked, for thyself long life neither hast asked neither hast asked riches for thyself nor hast asked the life of thine enemies but has asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment behold i have done according to thy words lo i have given thee a wise and understanding heart so that there was none like thee before thee neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee and i have also given thee that which thou hast not asked both riches and honor, so that there is, excuse me, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did, I walk in them, uh, then I will lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So we'll stop there and This is an interesting passage for us, and one of the things that we get hung up on, I say we, maybe I should just say me, one of the things that we get hung up on is how Solomon could be so wise and make such foolish decisions. And so he was one of the wisest fools to ever live, I guess we could say. And we talk about how him being wise, how he would uh, marry all of these women, how he would create these alliances with these other kingdoms, how he would violate all the principles of Deuteronomy 17, how is it that he would do this? And I think one of the reasons why we get caught up in this is because we look at it as if Solomon prayed for just a general wisdom and God just gave him a general wisdom. What was it that Solomon asked for? He wanted to know how to judge the people, how to lead the people. So basically, what God, or what he prayed to God for is he wanted a uh, a political type of wisdom. He wanted to know how people work, how nations work, how to govern, how to do these things, and he had a crazy amount of wisdom in politics in. Uh, psychology and people and how people work, what makes people tick, how to unravel these mysteries. He had that wisdom, but he prayed to God for that kind of wisdom to be able to lead nations, to be able to discern right and wrong amongst his people, to be able to judge his people. And God gave him that gift of wisdom. He didn't necessarily pray for any kind of spiritual discernment. Right? Right. Also, another thing we have to look at on this Because even with the wisdom that he had, he should have known better than the things that he did. But what I always bring out is there's plenty of times in our lives that we know better Mm -hmm. and do it anyway. Plenty of times that we look back in hindsight and say, I knew I shouldn't have done that, but... And then we reap the consequences, right? right? And so just because we have wisdom, just because we have knowledge, doesn't mean that we aren't still going to go after the things that we want to do. And here's where it comes down to is oftentimes our head and our heart are in conflict. Oftentimes our head and our flesh, we can often use the heart and the flesh uh, in connection with one another Mm -hmm. interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And so in one hand, we have the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. We have the wisdom of God's word. We have the wisdom of God that we can seek. He says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. God will give it to him. And so we have all of these things, but we are still abiding in the flesh. We still have a heart. We still have all of these desires and all of these uh, this will of our flesh that we're competing with. And we are still left in that competition there. We're left in the balance of which are we going to choose. And oftentimes, our heart beats out our head. Yeah, yeah. Our flesh beats out our wisdom and our knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we do what the basest desires are rather than what God's word and his will leads us to know is right and good. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not an excuse, but Solomon serves as a huge warning that you can have all of the wisdom in the world, but if your heart is the one that's leading and guiding, you're going to be in trouble. Okay, If we turn over to Ecclesiastes, Just after the book of Proverbs. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse number 12. He says, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under the heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. So whenever he says there, I gave my heart to seek after these things. Basically, he said, I have power, I have wealth, I have wisdom, I have all these things. And so I'm going to do something stupid and follow my heart. We come over to chapter number two. Verse number one, I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove with or I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. And so multiple times there, Solomon is talking about his heart and he's talking about wisdom and they are in uh, in competition almost with each other. Solomon had all of the wisdom. He had all of the knowledge. And as he sat there as the king with power, with the peace, he wasn't fighting enemies and everything. He says, I'm going to look for the meaning of life. I'm going to see what this is all about. I look around me, it all seems like it's vanity and vexation of spirit. Life is worthless. A man works his entire life. He builds up his empire. He does all these things. He gets all the wealth. And then whenever he gets to the end of his life, he goes to the grave, takes nothing with him, and within a generation, he's forgotten about. So why even live is basically what he's getting to. Mm -hmm. The book of Ecclesiastes is really, until you get to the end of the book, it's quite depressing. Mm -hmm. And so Solomon's saying, what is this life about? I'm trying to figure it out. I'm going to seek after all the things that the flesh desires to see if they bring fulfillment. None of them does. We get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says the sum of the matter is this. A man's full duty is to seek after God, to follow his precepts, basically to have a relationship with God. That's where it's at. Mm -hmm. So he says, I've tried everything foolishly. So getting back to what we looked at here in Solomon's prayer for wisdom, he prays for wisdom to lead the nations. He prays for this ability to be able to judge and to discern between people. And God says, I've granted it to you. I've given you this wisdom. And what does Solomon do with the gift that God has given him? Okay. That's a huge question for us because God gifts us with all sorts of gifts, talents, abilities, abilities. We know that there are spiritual giftings whenever a person gets saved, that the Holy Spirit gives them spiritual gifts. But we have natural talents and abilities, too, that God has blessed us with. And the question comes to us, what have we done with the gifts that God gives us? Because he doesn't give us the gifts with strings attached, and then whenever we don't use them the way that he would have us to, he doesn't take them away. The Bible says the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind after he gives it to us, but he gives it to us to steward and use for God's glory, but oftentimes we use it for our own glory. So Solomon has wisdom to lead the nation. He has wisdom to discern and to judge between people. And he uses the wisdom that he has to build up himself, to build up his empire, to oppress his people. David was a shepherd over the people, but Solomon is using his knowledge, his wisdom of how people work, how people think, how nations interact to play the political game, to elevate himself. He is using God's gift for his enjoyment and for his uh, advancement, I guess. And so Solomon is using the wisdom that he has to broker these deals because he understands how men's relationships work. He understands how politics work and he's brokering these deals with all these other nations. He is using it for trade. He's using it to build up armies. He's using it to strategically do things. Whenever we get to chapter number four, I hope to do it this evening, but we won't get to. But in chapter number four, he sets princes throughout the nation of Israel. He appoints princes under him. He organizes a government System in Israel. It's not just, you know, David and his advisors like it was then. Now it's Solomon and he's got the princes. And then the princes under him have officers. The officers are in charge of going out and fleecing the sheep, of going out, collecting taxes basically to provide for Solomon and all of these people that he is providing for. Because David, or not David, Solomon has uh, all these horses he has all these soldiers, he has all these household servants, he has all of these wives, he has all of these people eating at his table of depending on him for uh, livelihood and for wages and everything else. And so he has the officers, uh, 12 officers, one for each month, one for each region to go throughout that region and provide for Solomon and his household for each month. That's his taxing system to provide for this great big uh, bloated government that he is making and bloated household that he's making. And how was Solomon able to do that? God gave him wisdom. Mm -hmm. And he is using it basically against the people. And by the time you get to the end of Solomon's life, he has used worldly wisdom. He has used man's wisdom and political wisdom to elevate himself, to build a huge empire, to make his name known throughout the world, to have an insane amount of wealth, but he has also used it to oppress the people, to take from the people, to keep up with all these projects, and to make a name for himself, so that whenever Solomon passes on, that the people come to his son Rehoboam and says, Solomon really was rough on us. He used all of his wisdom, his political intellect, to bring taxes and make all these building projects and we're not poor, we're not impoverished, we are successful, but he has been taking a lot from us, and he has made a huge system to keep going, and we want you to make it a little smaller. We want you to take some of the bloat out of this government. Mm -hmm. We want you to lower taxes for us, but this all comes back to Solomon says, I want wisdom that will allow me to govern the people, and God gives him the wisdom, and he says, okay, Solomon, What are you going to do with it? And the reason I'm going through all of these things for us is, as I said a moment ago, we all have different giftings, different abilities. We ask God for different gifts and things, and God gives those to us, but it's up to us how we use them. There's plenty of people who have great oratory abilities, and rather than using them for God's glory, they use it to to be able to... Elevate themselves on the world stage, maybe through politics, maybe through some sort of um, entertainment or some sort of uh, event like that with their oratory abilities. People who have great intellect, great intelligence, and rather than using it for the things of God, they use it for the things of the world. People who have abilities of song, for instance. I've talked about this with the girls that there's plenty of famous singers today who started singing for God in churches and they've sold out and now they're singing. Uh, some of the most vile and filthy music in the entertainment industry. God gave them the voice, and they are using it for the devil. Mm -hmm. Okay, And those are just some of the examples God gives us gifts. He gives us things for his glory, for our good, and we use these things as stewards, either as poor stewards or as good ones, right? And so God doesn't just say, okay, if you're not going to use your voice for me, I'm going to take it away. If you don't use your wisdom for me, I'm going to take it away. He says, I'm going to give you these gifts, and how you use them is up to you. And so this kind of answers the question. It kind of settles the debate of, okay, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, but he did foolishly. It all comes down to this. Wisdom or the gifts that we have, but wisdom has to be... uh, has to go hand-in-hand hand with God, mm-hmm. right? The giftings that we have, the wisdom that we have, whatever it is, talents, and abilities that we have, we need to have those things and God. Right. Because Solomon goes through the rest of his life, basically, he says, I have all the wisdom. I know what I'm doing. I am amassing wealth for myself. I am amassing all of these followers, this honor, this reputation, I'm doing this by my abilities and by my wisdom. And he doesn't seek after God. He doesn't desire to serve God. We don't find him coming, uh, or at least not after the temple is dedicated. We don't find him pursuing after God. He is pursuing after his own desires with the gifts that God has given him. Mm -hmm. And in a way, this gift of wisdom ends up being a curse to Solomon. He even says... That uh, basically, I I didn't write down the passage, but in Ecclesiastes, uh, that all of the wisdom was a misery to him. Mm -hmm. Because God gave him these abilities, and he trusted in the abilities that God gave instead of the God that gave them. Mm -hmm. And we can often be guilty of the same thing. Mm -hmm. When we feel as if we've got it under control, we know what we're doing, we know how to go with this life, and we start trusting in ourselves, and then the abilities that God gave us, rather than depending in God, then we mess up just like Solomon did. Mm -hmm. Solomon would have been much better off saying, I have no clue what I'm doing, God, I've got to depend on you, than saying, I've got no clue what I'm doing, God, give me wisdom. Okay, now I'm going to depend on my wisdom instead of on you. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that's where Solomon kind of goes wrong in all of this. So he has the wisdom. The rest of the chapter here is a story. There's two women that were harlots. They came to the king. They said, we both had a baby. We had it in the same week. No one else was around. No one else saw us have the baby. No one else saw the baby die. It was just us together. One of the babies died and the other woman switched the babies out. And so it became a story of her, her word versus her word. No witnesses, no way to try it. It's just who is more believable. And that would be a tough situation. And this is used to so showcase Solomon's wisdom. He says, bring out a sword. They bring a sword. They say, He says, divide the baby in half. And the mother whose baby it was said, no, give it to her just as long as the baby doesn't die. I would rather she gets the baby than the baby dies. But then the other woman who didn't care for the baby, didn't love the baby, says, yeah, sure, hack it in half. If I can't have it, no one can. And Solomon looks at it and says, It's the one who actually loved it and didn't want to see it die. And so he was using wisdom of how the human mind works. Mm -hmm. He was using it to how to... See, that was the kind of wisdom that he had. And if he had dedicated his life to seeking after God and using this wisdom for God's glory, Mm -hmm. for the betterment of his people instead of his betterment, Mm -hmm. if it was to build up God's people and to be a witness and a testimony to the nations around, rather than for him to build up a bunch of projects that glorified himself, rather than to build up his harem, to build up his uh, his reputation in the region, the story would have been much different. And so it's a cautionary tale to each one of us that we need to make sure that we are living according to God's precepts, and that regardless of our talents or abilities, we need to understand that we we have a lack. We have our shortcomings. We have our inabilities that no matter how well we're doing, we still are extremely limited and we still need to depend on God. We still need to follow him. We still have to follow his word or else even the wisest, most well set up, the most well connected, the most wealthy, the most... Solomon had everything, and he still blew it whenever he decided to do his own thing rather than serve God. So if you think you're going to fare better than Solomon, who had unlimited resources, right? If you think you're going to fare better than Solomon, following after your heart to doing your own thing, depending on your own abilities, you are a bigger fool than he is. Because at the end of the day, every single person needs God. No one is going to go against the principles of God's word and do everything that God says not to do and do it successfully. They're not going to be able to violate the principles of Scripture and do well. There is going to be negative consequences in it. But on the flip side of that, God is more than willing to give out his blessings. He has been open and honest about his word. He is encouraging. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us everything that we need. And he is volunteering to come alongside of us, to yoke up with us, to lead and to guide and direct us into a place of true success, Mm -hmm. into a place where we can enjoy, to a place that is truly good and acceptable and perfect. As he says in his word, he has given us that invitation, given us everything that we need if we will just follow him and put ourselves under him. So with that being said, I need to quit. So does anyone have any comments or anything on what we've looked at tonight? Okay, if not, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can uh, we can learn from it, learn from the successes and the failures. Lord, and I know we've been kind of hard on Solomon tonight, but Lord, I know that uh, uh, all these things are recorded for our, our, our help, for edification. And help us to realize, Lord, that if if Solomon failed, if Solomon messed up, by going against these things, Lord, that we know that the same struggles and troubles and trials lie ahead of us if we forsake your way. Help us, Lord, to seek you before all things. Help us not to put any uh, trust in this flesh. Help us, Lord, to serve you, to live for you, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you have extended that opportunity, you extended that mercy. And Lord, just help us to take you up on that and walk with you and allow you to order our steps. We thank you so much for all that you do. We do love and praise in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.